0: Years, there's other things, and the sunspots didn't correlate. So, so trying to find, look for explanations, and the, uh, the major, the dominant, in the 20th century, of course, the dominant one is when they move one something in, within the market, something within capitalism causes this, it causes an inflationary period where there's uh, money supply increases, prices increase, <coughs> increase productive activity, everybody's happy. Almost has bingo there's a collapse, there's bankruptcies, unemployment, prices fall. And this is a terrible thing, and, and the government should step in and iron it out. Which is the sort of usual conclusion. So one of the indictments of free market capitalism is it causes business cycles, causes inflation, unemployment, and all the rest of it. Uh, the uh, and mostly, I would say, most economists today still hold this in one form or another. The uh, Keynesian variant, which we might go into, uh, is that there's under, what happens is the, the, mar- the, the market economy doesn't spend enough. And uh, because of that, recessions, recession is, and therefore, it spends too much in inflation, and therefore, you have to have something outside of the system which which, which can correct this. Of course, that's good old Papa's government. So when like, we got out of the machine, which comes in and corrects everything, if, if people spend too much and absorb there's a great Keynesian phrase which I love particularly, sop up excess purchasing power. <laughs> so like like a, the, the bounty, of the better pick up, right? <laughs> So, up. And if, uh, they don't spend, if the people out there don't spend enough, you pump spending in in order to get the juices going. So that's, uh, that's uh, the, uh, the government as I steps in as the corrector of all um, the Keynesian theory, by the way, the, the, uh, Keynes, Keynes had no theory of the business cycle. He didn't say why there's underspending, overspending. Said, uh, at one point, he said uh, investment increases because of animal spirits, and then it decreases with animal spirits, I guess, collapse. So at any rate, so there's no theory of the business cycle. It simply said, we don't know what caused the business cycle. We do know, however, it's caused by inflation, is caused by overspending, depression is caused by underspending. Therefore, the government says, you yeah. Know, Job of government is the pump spending in and sop it up. And uh, so I like the way I have the metaphor I like to, to use to explain the Keynesian doctrine is that the is that the government is sort of like the wheel of a car. The economy is the car, the economy is going around this tight or this ledge, very narrow ledge. On One side is the abyss of depression, the other side is the other abyss of the quagmire, the mountain cliff, or whatever, inflation. And even though the Keynesians at least Non-leftist Keynesians, moderate Keynesians will admit the free market works very well in the microsphere, the Sphere I've been talking about before, the supply and demand intersecting and clearing the market and all that—that's great. They said free market is good micro, but macro is total, total chaos. There's nothing. There's no equilibrating process in the macro sphere. There's nothing which will keep the economy an even keel, and uh, therefore we need the government to adjust it, to come in, to fix everything up. Uh, the, uh, <coughs> as a matter of fact I won't go into that this is, Every macro textbook has inflicted this upon you So I think we'll go into this uh, There's millions of words That were written about Lots of equations But the essence of it is very simple You find the essence of all this stuff you penetrate of the core It's quite simple uh, One thing is When Keynes' general theory came out I, I went to college it was About six years after Keynes' general theory came out Nobody understood what the hell he was saying. I mean, nobody. I mean, because it seemed very peculiar. One, on one page, he said that the key to my thought is that savings always equals investment. Always, always equals investment. Key. Two pages later he said the key to my thought is that savings always differs from investment. Well, I mean, how do you how do you how do grapple with this? So, since Keynes had, pre- had already established a reputation as a big shot as a distinguished intellectual and economist, therefore he couldn't be wrong, couldn't be. Absurd or whatever. It must be something, there must be deep, something deep in the no new jargon they no created, also no some new phrases, marginal propensity to consume, multiply, all of uh, and all that. And the older economists, so <coughs> the guys followed prunes and forgot it. The younger economists who were emerging out of grad, in graduate school, young professors, said, aha, this is it. And they started figuring out what the master meant. Uh, sure, sure of heart that the master was right. If you read the, the introduction of Samuelson's most famous Keynesian, I guess, around now, I think it was his Foundations of Economic Analysis, I believe, or also it was his first edition of the economics textbook, he said what a great joy it was, and a wonderful thing to be under 35 when Keynesian general theory came out, because he was young enough to appreciate this great revelation, this great truth which is emerging from the world. So it took about, I would say, about 10 years, well, more than 10, 15 years before the Keynesians figured out what he was saying, to try to to, try to rationalize this and make it consistent. As soon as they did that, again the whole Keynesian theory began to collapse around the edges. As soon as it was fairly clear to them what he said, they're still arguing about what Keynes really meant. There are conservatives who think Keynes didn't really mean what the Keynesians said he meant. Uh, I personally think he didn't mean it if he meant anything at all. I mean, I the Keynesians were the only person who made, made any sense whatsoever on this mishmash, this total muck. Alright, there are no no no, are no Keynesian diagrams in general theory. You won't find a diagram in it, just all it's all verbiage, incoherent verbiage. And interesting thing is Keynesian was a good writer. I mean, qua writer, he's very very good, but uh when you get to the general theory, I think the incoherence of the thought was uh profoundly full of the incoherence of the language. How all old right. was he when he wrote? Huh? How old was he when he wrote? Oh. <clears throat> well, he was pretty, he was fairly elderly at that point. He died in 1945, I think, so he's, what of I guess he was 50s, 60s, something like that. 60s, something, yeah, something like that. Um, at any rate, the, they um, yeah, the take Keynesian cross. Instead of having price on the y-axis and quantity on the x-axis, something different happens now. You've got dollars on both axes, each one being national income. Or whatever. That's Spending, yeah, it's the same stuff. It's just slightly slight variation. Yeah. Is anybody <coughs> that the gross national product? Eh? Gross national product. is that Keynes' idea? Yeah. <coughs> More or like, less. Well, the statisticians discovered a little bit before that, but Keynes needed the concepts in order to develop the theory. You can be you can believe in gross national product without being a Keynesian, but you can't be a Keynesian without believing in gross national product. Let's put it that way. The national income and the whole whole approach so the axes are the same key thing billions of dollars or whatever billions of francs or whatever the axes are identical so this is 100 that's 100 the same distance so since the axes are identical you then have a 45 degree angle which is also identical so this is 100, 100 so the coordinates are 100, 100 200, 200 or whatever going on up so, this 45 degree line then becomes national income, or so most national product, or whatever you know, variant doesn't make any difference. <clears throat> all right, so the Keynesian fit. well, all right, so let's say national income, let's say people receive, how much will people spend? Okay? Uh, people, this person gets $10,000 a year, they spend maybe less, maybe more, somewhere fluctuating around there. <coughs> Um, there's no particular law you can think of to we spending in the Something mm-hmm. saying, well, you know, they spend less they'll save it, they spend more they're going to debt, or whatever. Keynes is trying to get a theory of a macro optimum here, macro equilibrium, so to speak. Uh, his theory was that expenditures out of income okay, will be on a, have a certain function, expenditures are a certain function of income. Uh, and it's a function shaped like so. It's flatter. The expenditure function is flatter than the national income function, which is called Y for some unknown reason. They <coughs> <Yeah. coughs> um, couldn't call it I because I is already, already taken for investment, symbol for investment, they so made it Y. Uh, so, now this is not self-evident, to say the very least. I mean, if you're looking, for you think of expenditure function, if, for example, people received last year $500 billion, they'll probably spend around five hundred million billion, maybe less, maybe more, let's say less, but whatever, uh, there's no reason to assume it would be spending a lot much more than income and you keep going to the left of some point, and much less than income and you keep going to the right of some point. It's much more likely to be something like some zone around here. Right? There's no, there's no, there's no reason. If you look at it sort of rationally, there's no reason to think there's any kind of point there. And how King's got to the point, we'll see if we develop this. Uh, the uh, So then you have, the income expenditure, and he said, well, if, if income is higher than this point, let's say it's, I don't know, 300 billion dollars, if income is higher than this, people will spend less, and the, as you keep going, as income keeps going up, you spend less and less, what happens to the money? Around, let's say, blank out. Uh, The money, in the Keynesian phrase, leaks out of the economy, so it disappears. Uh, one Keynesian uh, use, the, use the term bathtub. It's like a leaky bathtub. It's got money pouring in. And a whole bunch of money leaks out. Therefore, it's not around, it's not around the fuel economy. Right? Leaks. Alright, so <coughs> the um, the un- this leakage, what he paints called saving. Saving is the thing that leaks out. Um, now, the only, the only possible set you can make on that is to say people just pile money out and hoard it. The old fashioned concept of hoarding. It. it just it just there. They have the dollar bills or the gold coins they just keep in there under you know, the floorboards. But that's uh, supposed to happen in order to keep going. So you have this concept of leakage. Right? And then you have the economy is down here. The, the, if you have, let's say, 100 billion dollar national income, people spend 200 billion. Where do they get the money from? How do you have a situation? Consider yourself. People are getting, receiving, and payment 100 billion dollars. They spend 200 billion. Where the hell do they get the money? Okay. Supposedly from under the floorboards, some, some from heaven. Again, as I say, blank like out. All right. So, all right. <coughs> the uh, <coughs> the only sense made out of the Keynesians. who worked out these, these diagrams. The only thing they have is this. They said, well, Keynes was thinking about two different things. He was looking at a time dimension, and he said as follows, let's say national income is uh, 500 billion here. So if you, if you look at it as a time dimension, uh, day one, year one, whatever you want to call it, some time period, say year one. Uh, income is 500 billion. Uh, it's, it's this expenditure is $400 million. the rest of it leaks out the rest of it's piled up in hordes. It's it's gone to the floorboards or whatever so that means that since expenditure equals income okay. Now, this is the other part of the thing how can it be different? how can it be the same? Okay, well it's the same as follows alright? the way to build that up <coughs> I spend 30 cents for a newspaper uh... I talk about how both parties benefit. Let's, if you don't concentrate on a newspaper, let talk about the money. Okay? Here's me. I spend my expenditure, small e, equal to 30 cents. And then, news dealer's income, in a gross sense of money coming in, to his pocket, is 30 cents. Small y. Okay? So, expenditure, every time anybody spends any money, my expenditure is, by, by definition, equal to his income, and, and determines it. Expenditure of the money is the act of force, if you're looking at the money. So, uh, I spend the 30 cents, he gets it. My 30 cents that I spend is exactly equal to his 30 cents that he gets it, except he drops it down the grade of a, a railing or something, it's rare, rare. So rare. So, therefore, expenditure is identical with income and also determines income. Expenditure is the act of force, if you're looking at money income. Okay, so, okay, fine. Uh, then what they do is they aggregate to the whole economic system. Every person in the economy spends money over a certain time period, a year. So this is called capital E, which is the sum of all the small e's. And capital Y is the sum of all the small y's. And therefore, capital E has got to be identical to capital Y has got to be terminal. All right. <coughs> I mean, All this, I think, is true, I don't know what it gets you, particularly, which might be interesting for some statistical purposes, right? So, the people spend during the year 500 million dollars, they have income, they spend 400 billion. What happens to the 400 billion? That becomes income. In other words, expenditure is the active force. You spend 400 billion, billion, national income is 400 billion. What happened to the other 100 billion leaked away? Right, so this means that year two, next year, income is $400 billion. In other words, the, the only thing that makes sense out is Cain saying on one page, expenditure always equals income, on the next page, the expenditure always differs from income. let look at it in a different time dimension. And what he was saying was, this year's expenditure determines next year's income, this month's expenditure determines next month's income. Right? so next, so you have a ratchet effect. Income is 500, 100 leaks away somewhere, so the next year, income is only 400. Right? So you're now down to 400. And then you have a free will decision by the masses. How much do you spend out of 400? You spend, when you look at it, as a function of income. According, according to the postulate, it's not proven, or just postulated expenditures like this. This is now down to 350. So you spend 350. Year three, income is 350 is here, and in you know, a couple of years or so you get back to 300 which is equilibrium. At 300, whatever that is, year 5 or something, uh, expenditure is 300, income is 300, and expenditure will again be 300. And there you are, you're equilibrium national income. famous Keynesian macro equilibrium. So, uh, if on the other hand you start from below that, Here at 100 billion, 250 billion. Uh, The income is 150 billion. This is year one. (coughs) This is, yeah, this is a four year one. Okay, so the income 150 billion. How much do people spend? They spend 250 billion. Where do they get the money from? They take it out of the leak or whatever, out of the leaky bathtub. Take it out of the boards, they take it out of the mattress. They spend 250 men. But if they can spend an extra 100 now, why can not they spend an extra 100 and spend 450 or 500 back in year two over there? It? it means you're saying why is expenditure supposed to be a flat function of income? Good question. I don't know. <laughs> this is absolute garbage. Wow. Right? Well, I'm going t- to try to explain how he gets to this. That okay. Each each step is garbage. The I conclusion mean, exactly. is garbage, and each step is garbage. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> and there's no need to try and understand him actually because it is garbage. No, I think no, no I think you should understand. We him argue right. with these people sure. all the time. We'll we about. don't understand yeah. what their terms yeah. Yeah. mean. Yeah. Understand how they yeah. get to what? Okay. Yeah. Like what the basis of the whole thing is. So, uh, the next year, I mean, the next year too. Then, uh, income is equal to the expenditure. That was algebra here, expenditure sub n is equal to and determines why sub n plus what, okay? And then out of that you make your free will decision how much to spend. So you're getting down, uh, yeah, so this is now 250 uh up here, people spend uh, 280 expenditure is still higher than in income, but less so, you're taking more, some more out of the floorboards out leaking out of, out of the pool whatever it is. <laughs> And et cetera, the et center, and finally the four or five, you get to 300 again. Where this is 300, that's 300, this is 300. and There you are, equilibrium national income. Well, aside from the leakage part, is obviously insane to begin with. I mean, people do not do this in practice. You don't have a statistic that shows an income, national income of 300 billion people spend 500 billion next year. Okay, they ain't got the money. Aside from that. Um, how can this thing ever change? Like, how does this change here? But supply and demand, you know how things change. The prices, the equilibrium price, it changes either with supply change or demand change. There's only one function expenditure and income. How do you ever get out of this? That's an interesting point. I do think, I, if there is such a function, you can ever get out of it. National income should stay the same forever. All right, so. Uh, mm-hmm. When do you get it, it's so even going to be constant, though. Huh? I mean, where to you get busy if They have to prove. They have to prove a couple of things. They have to, they have to prove that it's stable function. That its function should be in some sense stable. Okay. They also have to prove that it's flat like that. Both neither is self-evident. Neither is true. Okay. I'm getting to I'm exploring more and more of this insanity as we keep keep on with this. Yeah. Okay, sorry. Sure. Where does the hundred, hundred go? Uh-huh. Okay, it's like, okay, somewhere. What, the does stuff? it ever read here? We, well, it could read here over here if you're, if you're down here somehow. <laughs> No. no, they don't explain. How can you say explain? It's it gone. Yeah, put into <clears throat> mattresses, now. later on. You're not supposed to ask that question. No. Yeah. Get on. Look at this rationally. I mean, it's. The, like, I mean, okay. It's yeah. just as long as I, I can be lost. Right. Okay. From a mattress fire is due to smoking. Right. Right. Okay. So it's I mean, small. if you could spend the extra hundred over there, why can't you spend it over here? Thinking, no, I think. I Actually, that's another question. 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 Because it's a fixed function. It's a determined function in some way. Why is it a terminal function? Well, we see why they think of Well, if this on the right is true, then how do you to ever get to the left? Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I don't see how you ever get out of here. <laughs> you know, what's in there? Well, you have to assume a change in the function, which they do. I mean, it's a very very peculiar, because you only have one function. One independent thing. It's not, supply and demand have two things going on. Supply and demand, you're talking about intersection. There's only one thing going on. It's a very odd kind of uh, concept. And the other thing is that whilst it may well be true that because of reporting purposes and collection of data that in fact you've got the time delay there mm-hmm. but nevertheless that the moment that I spend a buck on something yeah. the other person receives it so there's no delay inherent in the transaction well it's it's, it's, uh, it's called a, day, a Robertsonian day E. H. Roberts of an interesting guy he was a, uh, Kane hated it. but anyway he, he had a concept of time periods abstract days a day defined as we get income you can't spend it until tomorrow so he talked in terms of day, but he took a, if you take a day one, day two, it looks oh, pretty okay. ridiculous. That, that was a, it's sort of an abstract thing where you, it obviously doesn't happen. In the real world, you're spending money, make, make, getting money all the time. Much so people spend it, people like yeah. Yeah, so for that reason alone, this thing is sort of shot anyway. You have to assume abstract time periods where everybody gets a lot of money and doesn't spend it until the next time, next time period. So you can call this day one, day two, day three, if you want to. Month, week one, week two, week two. So, um, this is a serious theory. It's very serious. It ran the whole world for 50 years, from the late 30s to the mid 70s. I know it did. i just still, This is still the major. I would say most economists uh, are not still Keynesian, even though Keynesian is sort of de- pretty definite the I got it's very confused. Or, it's still clinging to this. <coughs> <funnyness. laughs> uh. <laughs> <laughs> Corporate not Advisor, an economic advisor to our prime minister uh-huh. yeah. I like ooh still I don't know this is garbage too but it's yeah, like he's also a Keynesian on top of everything else he doesn't stress it <laughs> yeah what magazine my I think it was an article a little while ago on Keynes and Schumpeter mm-hmm. like yeah Schumpeter yeah it was Peter Drucker I right. yeah, wasn't too good I, I thought Drucker was pushing Schumpeter for the wrong reasons so, yeah, it was interesting an interesting article I you know, didn't buy it at any rate, so, uh, so what's right, let's assume this is correct for a minute. Let's assume there is an equilibrium. We're stuck at the end of the day. Who the hell really cares? What difference does it make? Okay? That's the second step in this, this, this mighty theory here, edifice. It makes a difference for the following reason, according to the Keynesians. Uh, production is one-to-one correlation with national income. And employment is one to one correlation with production. So that, okay, if so, if QED or whatever, the higher the national income, the more the production, the higher production, the higher employment. The lower national income, the lower production, the lower employment. Okay. Severe unemployment problems, the lower national income. If you look at that, if you look at this thing, it ob- seems to be totally, obvious, total garbage. National income has gone up for you know tenfold in the last hundred years or something. Employment remains the same. There's no difference in employment. Why should employment have anything to do with national income? What is the, what's, what's going on here? <clears throat> yeah. Even production doesn't hardly have a one-to-one correlation with that. It's just spending. So there a couple of hidden assumptions here, which uh, on a clinker, it took it took until 1950, a whole series of equations for. Uh, Franco Mugliani, distinguished Italian-American Keynesian, to come out to figure out how Keynes gets to this thing where employment depends on national income, where the lower the national income, the more unemployment. And the hidden assumption there, the clicker on the arm, which is one of the beginnings of this, of the, at least the, the retreat from Keynesianism among the high theorists, okay, they looked at this thing and they finally understood the whole equation how they all fit together, they come, my God, He's assuming rigid wage rates downward. ah uh-huh. The assumption is, which is, Britain in those days was, was fairly accurate in a sense, that, that uh, wage rates can only go up, they can't fall. Why can't they fall? Well, those of institutional reasons. Unions, government minimum wage laws, unemployment insurance, all these things keep wages from falling. Okay, Wage rates are fixed downward. Aha. Uh-huh. ha Now he now makes some sense out of some of this stuff. Namely, that if... Eventually, i 300 billion. As a big deflation, let's say. I say the money supply is because Keynes doesn't talk about the money supply. I say the money supply is cut in half, and prices and wages are all cut in half, more or less. Everybody should be more or less in the same position. Shouldn't be any big problem, you know, after a sort of transition period. But if wage rates remain the same as they were when when money and prices and everything else was double, then of course you have a real problem because unemployment is a function of wage rates. So that if if the if uh, demand for labor, so to speak, is cut in half and wage rates stay at the, at the original level, then you do have a rate having it on plan. It has nothing to do with the free market. It has nothing to do with the, need, the alleged need of the free market for the steering wheel. It means because wage rates are rigid downward by exogenous union and government forces. So it's a very different... If Keynes had admitted that from the very beginning, it would have been a very different sort of, kind of story. What it means is the onus of unemployment rests on the on government rather than on the free market. Okay, but it took a long time like 15 years to realize this was a hidden assumption. And even then they weren't very happy about it. It was the King deal, so, so tucked under you know, some kind of lemma there, cor- corollary. Okay, so rigid wage rates downward become a key to this. The unemployment problems. Okay, so, and, and it became then pretty evident that and the whole Keynesian trick was to create, f- solve depressions by creating inflation, by creating increasing money supply, by increasing prices so to trick unions and the workers into accepting lower real wage rates while the money wage rates remain the same. That's the essence of a political Keynesianism. It's a whole bunch of trickery. It's, it's duplicity on a mammoth scale. It's, it's people who claim they love the working classes, and each they time they're inflating prices higher than wage rates so the real wage rates in terms of purchasing power go down. So the, so the unemployment problem was then solved, in a very tricky, it's roundabout fashion. Uh, okay, so that's the, that's the political essence of Keynesianism. Underneath all the camouflage. continue on with the theory here. Uh, how, does he, how does he get the, how does he, get, how does he get, how does he get the, well, first place, one of the things that happened was he said that the Keynesians in the 1930s said, well, the is mired here, or finished, et cetera, et cetera. You have to have mammoth government spending to what increase? Oh, I'll go this way. Continue on on this thing. There's income. expenditure. There's some line here. the some called full employment line, magic full employment line, which is somewhere. Say here. This is a line at which. Unemployment is wiped out to keep increasing national income, okay? If expenditure is such the intersection point below the full employment line, you have permanent depression. There's no way the free market economy can get out of it. They're stuck in the expenditure function. There they are. They should have a 500 billion. Let's say 500 billion dollar national income is the key to full employment. We're stuck at 300. Therefore, therefore what? Therefore, the government the gone out of the machine steps in and spends 200 extra billion to raise the expenditure <laughs> function so we just hit the full employment line so you just fine tune the system. No wonder it's going to Yeah. <laughs> 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 the government spends 200 billion dollars mm-hmm. and adding to, go- to the total spending so it's to raise the thing to the 200 billion, but to the magic full employment. Nobody knows where the full employment line is, by the way. Right? Who the hell knows where it is? But anyway, if you're in a depression, you assume it must be to the right of the where where we are now, so you pump in a lot of spending. If, on the other hand, the this is the Keynesian approach. i not very strong on inflation. I couldn't really, were not very keen on analyzing it in the depression. <laughs> but the if what am I doing? is Sorry. If the expenditure line is higher, okay, at the intersection point, let's say 600 billion. That means that there's inflation. This causes inflation. If you're the right of the full employment line of inflation, left of the full employment line of depression is permanent. We're stuck, we're mired in this this evil expenditure fluctuator. those no self equilibrator as the microsphere has. Therefore, government gone out of the machine comes in, pumps in spending, or takes it out. Stop, up our excess purchasing power. And does what what, Destroys it? Burns it? Who knows? So, okay, where does the government get the money from? Essentially, that's blackout also. Right? Government spends it, it creates our deficits. Um, and uh, it has also an inflation that has surpluses. But the original Keynesians were kind of cute about this. They said, well, they said, we have a business cycle something like this. Old fuddy-duddy reactionaries are in favor of balanced budget. Well, we are a favor of balanced budget too, just we're not limited to the, terms of the concept of the year. We believe in balancing budget on the entire cycle. Saying this. Four years of depression. We spend money. We have deficits. Then it's four years of retention. we have surpluses which stop up the old deficits. So over an eight or ten year period, we have a balanced budget, right? This is called this is called the concept of a cyclically balanced budget. What's happened to the concept of a cyclically balanced budget? It's the old Orwell memory hole. Okay, and nobody talks about it. No Keynesian textbooks write about it. Because obviously, there ain't no balanced budget. it's either a very big deficit or a slightly less big deficit. Okay. So, the concept of a surplus is going on also. Nobody talks about a budget surplus anymore. You don't check inflation by budget surplus, you check it by slightly reducing the deficit. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I how <don't know> that. <laughs> now, now the, uh, how do you get at this thing? How do they arrive? at this flat function. There are two things they have to support in some way. But the expenditure function is flat, and therefore has an intersection at one point, and the stable, so you can even talk about it. Well, in the first place, the first thing that happened with Keynesians came about 1945, with Simon Kuznets, who's not one of my favorite economists, sort of an establishment statistician. He said, well, gee, you know, if you look at it over time, over the last 150-year period, consumption doesn't go like this. national income increases, expenditure doesn't go like that. Expenditure is more or less the same proportion of the national income as it always was. Therefore, expenditure function rises secularly in the long run. Keynesian okay, say, yeah, you're right. Over a long period, expenditure keeps rising to meet income. And therefore, you don't have a sort of 100 year depression. It's only 20 years, or something like that. That's the first big concession of Keynesian. OK, yeah. Maybe we can get out of this after 20 years. <coughs> anyway, how do they get to this thing? Well, they get to this expenditure function. As follows. I think in the history of economic thought, this might be the biggest single racket, Big, biggest single collection of fallacies. They're tough to really judge it this. Uh, Okay, you have this allegedly fine expenditure function. The argument it this follows. Well, expenditure consists of two kinds of expenditure. There's investment, and there's consumption. consumption, consumer goods consumption is about 90% of the investment 95 80 whatever it is um, and um, investment can't to no theory investment investment is free floating it's animal spirits it's, it's free will investment is free will it's, it's fall- volatile it's kooky it's whatever booms and busts okay? there's, no, there's no determined law of investment consumption however is different consumption is fixed and determined like so flat intersecting at certain points. Is that another one of their arbitrary assumptions? Yeah, we're we'll going back beyond the arbitrary assumption of expenditure function. They don't talk about expenditure function, they talk about consumption function. But this is essentially what they're saying. They're saying an expenditure function, which can be broken down into two parts. Investment, which is constant here, because it's not a function, it's free will. Okay? And consumption, which is a determined passive, because consumers are determined passive jerks or whatever. And <laughs> And they have this kind of a function. It's stable, consumption function. If supply and demand is a famous you know, uh, the famous phrase for microeconomics, the famous phrase for Keynesian is consumption function. It sort of gets you a, at least a D, a, a test, is <laughs> the <word>. So, <laughs> consumption function is, is flat-ish and it's stable. Why is it flat and stable? Right? It brings it, pushes it back another. And by the way, you see, what happens then is, investment is free will, consumption is passively determined, and what else is free will in the world? Government. Government expenditure is very free will. They, they, got, they got free will out the yang-yang. Okay? So government then steps in, you see, you supply the efficient expenditure. Invest, therefore, government spending is honorary investment, specifically the same thing as investment, because it's free will. Consumers are passing the term, investors are free will, but volatile and sort of undependable, and government is free will and rational. And that steps in and corrects, these, these flaws of the free market Good thing too Yes, absolutely <laughs> okay. I mean, where would we be Where would that? we be, right <laughs> Okay, so How do they get this consumption function The C plus I and all that Well uh, The um, stability Well, the shape of the consumption I mean, the key to this thing Is it has to have an intersection point The intersection point, the whole thing washes out they got it from budget studies. It's a very interesting, it was an interesting methodological leap. Nineteen thirty-five or thirty-six, the Department of Labor thing it was had a budget study. What they did is they, they investigated people's incomes and their consumption, okay? and they found out—not I think, unsurprisingly—this has nothing to do with national income. These are people's income, groups of people. Okay? They found out that uh, if you go up, if this is income classes. This is, uh, as you, and this is, you have this national income, well, it shouldn't be natural. As the, well, let's say this is income here, this is consumption here, that if you're, wealthy people tended to have spend much higher proportion, excuse me, wealthy people tended to spend a much lower proportion of income than poor people. In other words, you have something like this, uh... This is the 45-degree line again. You have something like uh, people who make a... Let's say, let's say David Rockefeller. His income is maybe $15 million a year. He doesn't spend it all on consumption. He spends like maybe 10-minute consumption, 40-minute he saves or invests, all right? So you have, then, much lower consumption rate. Consumption proportion. And a middle class is closer to the line. And something like that. And then you get the poor people you find that... Lower income people spend more than they take in. So if somebody makes $2,000 a year, he spends $6,000. So you have this kind of a function. If you're dealing with income classes within the same period, same year. Therefore, they said, see, that's the consumption function. Now, some of the many things wrong with this. Okay. One is, these are not dealing with national income, they're dealing with groups of people within the same national income. It's a very entirely tyler- different thing. Uh, it's true that a rich person might spend, might spend less, consume less than the poor person. It doesn't mean that if both, if everybody is richer, everybody will spend, uh, consume less than before. Two t- totally different things. This whole thing gives you one point on this, this graph. It doesn't give you the whole graph. So that's one big problem. It doesn't establish a damn thing. Secondly, as Milton Friedman pointed, actually Milton Friedman was probably his biggest contribution to economics is the so-called long what do you call it? The permanent consumption function. Uh, he said, look, people don't, <clears throat> don't spend money, they consider how much you consume out of their current income. They don't only consider their current income, they consider what their income was two years ago and will be two years from now. Suppose you have a best selling author, for example, Irving Wallace, let's say he writes a top novel every five years. If he gets one million million one one year, he's not going to spend all of it that year, okay, and have zero he's going to allocate over a five-year period so that <coughs> if you catch Irving Wallace in his, his, his flush year, he'll be spending way below, his, assuming way below his income. On the other hand, if you catch him a year when he's making zero and spending $500,000 a year, he's here somewhere. It's a distorted picture. <coughs> if you take a five-year period, take, if you take these same income groups and take their income over a five-year period, you get a very different statistic. So Friedman potentially did that, I found out, lo and behold, that if you do that, everything changes. And so this budget study thing shifts from this to something like that. So the people who really have low incomes for five years spend less than the income. Where the hell do I get the money from? Of course, that's another interesting question. If you're really poor, you don't have $2 million on little floorboards. And you don't get permanent credit either. I mean, you can get some credit from, from it. friends, neighbors, or storekeepers, but, you know, pretty soon it washes out you I gotta keep getting some income. So the whole thing, when you start directing for it, simple permanent income, you get a consumption function like this, much more intelligent, and there's no intersection point. The intersection point washes out, Keynesianism is wiped out on that basis alone. Plus, you know, half of the other things, we're talking about. And plus the fact it doesn't really pertain to national income changes. So that's, that takes care of the concept of flatness. What about the stability? How do they get the stability thing? Like, why should it be stable? Uh, they get that from this. They take, well, for 30 years or so, you take national income. Okay. This is one of the great, this is sort of like a walk, Keynesian is in many ways like a walking mathematical fallacy, statistical fallacy. You take, uh, this is over a different years, you take income, national income and consumption and plot them. Okay? and you get something like something like that. It's all around the same amount. The deviation, the variation around the correlation is very small. If on the other hand you plot national income with saving or investment, you get a much bigger variation. Yeah, something like that. Conclusion was. That consumption is a very stable function it may come because there's very small variance around it, whereas investment or saving is a very volatile and free will. That's the it's really investment. Investment is volatile and free will because the correlation is, uh, the, variant, the variance around it is much greater. The trick here, the gimmick involved is if you take something and correlate it with 95% of itself, you get a very high correlation. Okay. It looks very stable. It doesn't really mean a damn thing. If, on the other hand, you correlate something with 5% of itself and get a lot of variance. It looks like it's unstable. That is the hooker. That's the key to the Keynesian function. You right? correlate something with 90% of itself it looks stable. correlate with 5% 10% of itself looks unstable. So my, uh, my little satiric thing, which I have very constant state, uh, reducing this to a reductal lot of absurdum as follows: why, you know, why, only have investment plus consumption? Those aren't the only things which make up any national income. All right. Take national income, and is equal to income of Brooklyn, B, plus income of every every other place except Brooklyn. Call it E for everybody. No, really, it's call it V for everybody. All right. So. And you correlate the two things. If you correlate national income with all income except Brooklyn, this is about ninety-nine percent of that. Say ninety-five percent of that. Ninety-nine percent. If you correlate uh, national income with everything except Brooklyn, you got a very something like that. Very high correlation, almost no variation around, it, almost invisible. If over thirty years, forty years, whatever. If on the other hand you correlate national income with Brooklyn income, there's a lot of variation all over the place, right? So you can therefore conclude that Brooklyn is the key. Okay? <laughs> Not investment, How well investment? The, the, the multiplier. <laughs> the investment is equal to income equal investment assumption. This is 95, this is five. The multiplier is 20. This is the famous Keynesian multiplier. If you, the conclusion was if you increase investment, and government spending remember is the same as investment, it's honorary investment, is an increase national income by 20 fold. This was the original. Heady days of early Keynesianism. I right? think so, well, we have a much more powerful multiplier. Brooklyn, we you have a you know, hundredfold you increase. You give ten dollars to every resident of Brooklyn, you have a two trillion dollar increase in national income. <laughs> okay? and this is this is a multiplier effect, it's a stable multiplier. I, I, stable think, I think you yeah, you, you, clearly don't, don't. you should you should pull it Roth? I did. That's the that's yeah. the punchline. You're, you're stepping on my bunch. <laughs> <laughs> the, so, 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 Brooklyn is a volatile, free will, free will people, volatile, free willing. Everybody else is a, sh, is a schnook who's out there in the passive and determined. And, of course, as you said, inclusion of the conclusion whole thing is, is the Rothbard multiplier, much more powerful. If okay? you take <coughs> national income equals Rothbard income plus everybody else except Rothbard. <laughs> <You see. laughs> <laughs> Correlate them. You can prove that they, the, this correlation between national income and everybody else's in income is very stable. We can't see any difference. Correlate my income and national income. Almost no correlation at all. <laughs> Therefore, I have free will. I'm I and mean, Everything else. Everybody else is schnucky, pass in passive, determined. Give me one buck, and I'll, I'll you know <laughs> refashion the universe. <laughs> <laughs> national income will go up by two, three trillion dollars. <laughs> just just give, we give you a million. Right. Exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, it. Give me money. <laughs> and all good things will come under you. you the problem. This is what Trudeau works. What's that? Yeah, this is what Trudeau works <laughs> <laughs> So, this is, uh, there's nothing, and the Keynesians cannot rebut this. This is a, a reductive absurd of Keynesianism. There's no way they can counter this. So, it's like, well, it's ridiculous. You it didn't anyway. So, um, anyway, I think, uh, I think it's pretty clear this time. This whole thing is a like, is one big, gigantic scam. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> huh? yeah. the, uh, the question then becomes, uh, if the government is supposed to pump in deficits during the re- recession and uh, take out, sump up our purchasing power during the boom, uh, first place, how, how do they arrange the deficits? Well, Keynesians themselves say it doesn't make any difference, just have a deficit. But it became pretty clear to people are sort of semi kings, you know, whatever, that makes a certain amount of difference here. You, If you, uh, if you borrow money from, uh, if the government borrows money from from, from capitalists or public, uh, it's true the government will spend, say, 100 million, but it might be offset by 100 million dollars spent, not spent by these other people. They could have spent money. They could have had their own multiplier. Of course, they're supposed to be determined and passive. There's still a certain worry there that uh, you're at least potentially reducing the public spending by government spending more. Therefore, the thing to do if you're sort of a moderate Keynesian or semi-Keynesian is to have the government specifically def- have deficits by mo- by printing more money, by creating more money. You'll be sure to have new spending, raising the whole the whole expenditure function. Uh, so that's, uh, that's sort of a modification. Now the same these surpluses during the boom, that never never happened. That's sort of washes that. Then Keynesians separated into categories, several categories. Most people think Keynesians are all left liberals, so that's not, not necessarily true. As a matter of fact, the people who brought us the Ford administration, the Nixon administration, and now the, most of the Reagan administration are Keynesians, they're conservative Keynesians. So what is this let it's a it's a different it's a it's a different aspect of the same doctrine. So how does this work? Well, let's say you have your to the left of the full employment line your your 200 and you're supposed to be 300. So the desideratum is you want a government deficit of 100 billion dollars, right, to put you up to the line.